0: Hello and welcome to the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories. And I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Today, we'll be taking a deep dive into Ron Howard's thrilling new movie, 13 Lives, which retells the heroic and harrowing story of the rescue of those 13 young Thai soccer players who were trapped in a flooded cave back in 2018. Joining us to discuss the movie is the man himself, Academy Award-winning director Ron Howard, as well as much of his post-production team film's editor James D. Wilcox, re-recording mixers Chris Burden and William Miller, as well as supervising sound editors Rachel Tate and Oliver Tarney, the latter of whom also served as the movie's sound designer. 13 Lives is available to stream right now on Prime Video. This film has a truly extraordinary sound mix, and experiencing it in Dolby Atmos recreates the peril and the claustrophobia the real-life divers must have experienced an almost agonizing detail. So that was the name of the game for these filmmakers, authenticity, both because of the global attention that this story received, as well as the importance of honoring the memory of the folks who were lost in the rescue attempt. But crafting the film with that much attention to detail was
1: not without its challenges,
0: as director Ron Howard tells us.
1: It's been a pleasure to work on honestly, and kind of inspiring. I mean I, I, I've, I've said this a few times, but I, I really I never had less complaining on any movie that I directed in my career than this one and it was simply because I think everybody uh, recognized that uh, this was a unique opportunity to, to uh, you know to, 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 to really offer audiences something because it's a, it's a combination of things. It's suspenseful and it's uh, and it's uh, and it's emotional. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's enlightening. But what it really does is it recognizes uh, in, in, a, in a very human way, I think, uh, uh, you know, what what human beings are capable of, you know, what's possible uh, with that kind of cross-cultural um, commitment and cooperation. But it's also just that, you know, the, most of the people involved didn't have to be there. And yet, they made such a, a huge difference. And I and I um, and I also think that in this climate of kind of filmmaking and what's possible to get a green light on, I think that we, I think we also felt fortunate to be able to to have the resources at our disposal to really tell this story well. It was tight; but we had to maximize those resources, but but it was enough, just enough. And and um, you know, everybody really threw themselves into it. It was exciting for me as a, as a director.
0: You know, obviously, this is a a, a very well known news story from 2018 that millions of people around the the world followed. There there was an acclaimed documentary, The Rescue, made about it, a PBS series, and it, it sounds like such a, a terrifying challenge to then come in and make a Hollywood film based on this same material, and not to mention the fact that it was going to be an enormously difficult movie to shoot. So what, what, what made you excited and made you want to say, yep, this is for me. I'm jumping on. I want to make this film.
1: Well, there, there were a number of things, because this is not something that I developed. It, it came to me. It was William Nicholson's script sent to me by producers Gab, Gabby Tanna uh, and PJ and Sandwick. Um, my agents were very supportive of it. They loved the script. So did I. Uh, so it was, it, was a, it was a terrific creative um, opportunity. And, uh, but there were some red flags. You know, it's a story that's very well known. I already knew their documentaries had existed and more was happening. There were competing projects. There was, there was a lot going on around it from a business standpoint to, to, to sort of raise question marks and, and concerns. The greatest one for me, honestly, was the, the Thai culture. Because the version of the script that I read wanted, uh, and that I wanted to develop further, was going to demand even more Thai uh, emphasis. Um, I felt it was their story. I wanted to know, to develop the, 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 those characters. Uh, and, 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 uh, and through research, I just sensed that there was even more to reveal. And it, and it turned out that I was, I was right about that. But I knew that that was coming with a, a tr- huge challenge because, you know, I am who I am and I don't speak Thai. Uh, and, uh, but I've, I've had just enough experience working in other cultures and languages to believe that if I made it a priority, you know, that I could get that right. In fact, I was so grateful for all my previous experiences, uh, whether it's underwater stuff from going back to Splash and Cocoon or in the heart of the sea or, 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 or whether it's the, the, the sort of the pressure of shooting in really claustrophobic environments from Apollo 13. Uh, as I said, the, the various different nationalities and cultures and languages from the Da Vinci Code movies. Uh, you know, all of these things gave me confidence to believe if I brought my experience to this movie, I could I could do something with it that in and of itself would have value, which is to try to do a scripted version, a high profile one with great internationally known actors, and and allow audiences on a really granular level to just have a sense of what it might've been like to be there. What did it feel like on that most humanistic level? And I think scripted narrative is, 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 is one of the, the best ways to sort of open up those lines of empathy and understanding documentaries. And I love working on the documentaries. I was grateful for the documentary experience that I've had in recent years as well, when it came to making this movie, but, you know, they, they are there to present as many facts as possible and to sort of blow you away with that information flow. Uh, and and uh, you could find those very entertaining. But, you know, m- movies are there to, as, as an emotion machine and, and to connect it on that most human level. And that, I felt like whatever anybody else did, we could do that. And the story was so important that I felt like that we could just contribute to sort of the way this story is, is remembered and understood.
0: Well, I, I really appreciate that answer because it also kind of tees up the rest of our conversation because as you say, that you're using the tools of narrative storytelling to really give people the experience. And obviously the soundtrack is a, a huge part of that. And especially in the underwater sequences, this team did just a, such a fantastic job of giving us that visceral experience of being underwater.
1: Well, they really did. I mean, and uh, you know, and from the beginning, uh, you know, I I, I knew I, I knew I, I'd ask James to to edit immediately. You know, because I I knew that just from working with him a couple of times that I have that his uh, his, his his great sense of character, um, and and a and a, a wide array of, of 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 characters and sensibilities, and just all the work that he's that he's done. Leading up to this, I, I just knew he was equipped to, to really get at this in an interesting way, and in a way that I, you know, that, that I wanted to. But I also knew from my experience, especially on Apollo thirteen, but also on recent documentaries, that this is one a movie where we were going to go out, explore it, you know, shoot the hell out of it, get as much information as we could, get as many ideas as we could during our production period, and then really ultimately. Find that story that was going to have the drive, that was going to hold the suspense, that was going to contain the information plus the emotion, in in editing, and I and I knew that that uh, that you know J- James would be you know re- incredibly helpful in that way, and he was very 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 uh, creative as we kept refining and discovering, and also I felt like the sound had to be you know that really needed to be a character in this because we needed to to create an, um, an environment. And I knew music could help and I knew I could do, you know, sort of whatever I could in the, in, in shooting. But, man, I, I also knew that um, the soundscape was going to be vitally important, not only in the cave, but also, you know, uh, in, in that, uh, uh, you know, in, in the camp itself, in that environment. You know, obviously,
0: almost the first 20 minutes of this film takes place in Thai, uh, you know, without any English language being spoken. So I was curious for you from a a picture editorial standpoint, how did you approach all the the foreign language material and cutting performances in another language? And then and then same question, uh, Rachel, for you in terms of editing all that dialogue.
2: Yeah, uh, Glenn, I'll tell you, the first 16 and a half minutes of the film is exclusively in Thai. And when I read the script, I thought to myself, like, how can we begin to build some members of our team that may be of the Thai culture that could help us with language, could help us with culture, could help us with accuracies, and probably who was informed on the story. And I couldn't really come up, me or my team, uh, my lead assistant, Simon Davis, we couldn't really find anyone in the Thai community. It was during lockdown, so our resources were kind of limited. But um, that was the thing that kept me up most at night worrying about getting the language accurate and like pulling performances and misspeaking and ad-libs and um, just the proper intonation and emotion behind the lines. And Ron gives the actors a lot of leeway for improv. So the film feels really natural, but eventually what I developed was in hearing the repetition of the dialogue and going across all the takes, I began to develop a bit of an ear for the rhythm of their language. And so I wouldn't touch that naturally when I began to cut it because I didn't know if cutting up or pulling up pauses at that point in my first cut, what that would really do to their language. So I kind of left it. And then I worked a lot with Simon Davis on it, and he went across every one of the takes and subcapped subtitles each one of those lines there. So when there was a difference between take to take, I kind of could be- begin to hear it. And overall, I think the guiding light of it all, or the, the, the really the focus of it all for me, sonically, was the emotion. Just the performances that our Thai cast members gave us, I could just feel my way through it. And once I got, I think it was, I was comfortable at about five minutes worth of story in the in the beginning, that I then asked for us to bring in a translator, and uh, she came in and she watched that first five minutes. And I sat next door and continued working while she sat with Simon. And it was really interesting. After she left, I went over and asked Simon how did we do, and he was he just gave me the thumbs up. He goes, "There's a few things here and there." You know, I just slid one way or the other. Um, but that was even tricky because that lady who came and helped us, she's not in the industry. She's actually from Bangkok. And she understood enough of what was said in that Northern Thai Thai dialect to help us. But she was so emotionally invested in the story, Simon would turn to her and ask her, what did the governor say here? And she would be completely in tears. And so they'd have to, and she would say he said one thing and he got confused and then he'd go back and play it back again. And then she would say, yes, he said, what you want him to be saying. So we had that on our side. And then also Simon, to his credit, very, very organized. He had the Google translator with him at all times, breaking down the tie. And then our script was phonetically, it was in English, but it was also phonetically broken down in tie. So with the addition of those two tools and the translator, and then later on, we brought in other translators to vet the previous translator. So um, after a while, that no longer became my issue. It really became the other factors, all the moving parts of the story and how to get that in balance as we kept a sort of urgent timeline and pace going towards that final day, day 18.
3: Yeah. And talking about the Thai dialects, I didn't realize before I started that there's actually four different dialects in Thailand and they are quite different. It's not just a slightly different accent, it's different timings and different words even. So uh, we had to make sure at Ron's behest, but, but quite rightly that anyone in any part of Thailand would watch this and go Yes, those people from northern Thailand sound like they should be from northern Thailand, not like I'm like I say. It's like having a Texan in Canada. It it you can understand it, but it's quite different, and we can't mess that up. So we have to also remember this was shot in Australia during COVID. So yes, although um, the characters are Thai, some of them have an Australian accent in their Thai that we needed to work with voice coaches prior to each ADR session, they had a lot of work with a voice coach. And then when we recorded if they needed different words, different timings, because they would have done if they had to go from Central to Northern Thai, then fitting those in the mouth, or picking words that would have the same meaning, but the right mouth shape. Yeah, It's tricky It's tricky. But the crowd uh, was a little Uh, less tricky. We actually got uh, a crowd uh, recording session done in Northern Thailand, about 45 minutes from the cave. And uh, that was with Alex Boyson, who's our sound editor who lives over in Thailand. He's lived there for decades. And they did kids crowd for the football at the beginning. They did um, the farmers uh, chopping the bamboo, uh, every part of it. And they did a central Thai crowd for the officials and the uh, Thai Navy SEALs. So it's all very specific. And we found out the other day, actually, Alex wrote to us um, when we got here. And he said that since doing the crowd recording, they've all become really good friends. This is just what it's like in Thailand. Everyone helps everyone. And they've all become really good friends. And they're gonna have this film festival next week with 60 of them all showing up and a big sheet up on the wall, outdoor projection. The minute the rainy season stops, he said, that's what they're doing. And he said, there's just an understanding with this film over there from the ones who have seen it, that because we paid such detail attention to the dialect, that it is a great compliment to them because they're not used to seeing that in a film, especially one from the West, you know, so they, uh, they, they really appreciated that. And I'm glad he told me that, but I just love the idea of this film festival happening next week.
0: You know, as a mixer, having to mix all that material, uh, you know, was that a specific challenge for you? How did you approach? Uh, I presume you're not fluent in Thai yourself.
4: No, I mean, um, in terms of the, the sort of technical approach, it would be a dialogue pre-mix. Sometimes I was left on my own. Um, I would treat... Some languages do sound quite different um, frequency-wise. And Thai certainly has a, 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 a slightly more aggressive dynamic so not even thinking about the actual content there's a slightly different approach there you know just subtly different approach um the, the younger voices as well early on and so on so to, to to give this sort of keep it a rich interesting sounding there, there was that aspect to it and i was aware of that there's a mixture of um, adr and so on early on i in all honesty you have to rely on the, the the layers of people who are checking, you know, I would have subtitles and so on and so forth, but but picking out characters and, and again when it's multi, you know, there's maybe fourteen, fifteen kids in a scene or or, or smaller numbers or the parents and there were slight layers. Again, you would it would just be you'd be pull focus um, in terms of dynamic and so on, but you would be reliant on on subtitles being accurate and in the right place again asking Rachel specifically and then we checking, checking, checking that what we've done. So you're you're a little bit blind in certain respects, and and it harts it, it, it back a little what a lot of what James is saying. You again you get a sense of the emotional um sort of shape because you you feel the human aspect whether you understand it or not. So the, the again the brilliant editing to bring it to that sort of emotional shape and you're just making sure you keep retain that so and then as the film unfolds there's less um uh, sort of minutes uh, the original first 20 minutes being solely tied that, that that breaks down subsequently so the english starts to you know be interwoven and so on so that changes it but yeah a little bit different technically but mainly Further down the line, you, you again—you just the sensitivity, the cultural, the spiritual nature of this movie. You just want to get it right, and so it was checked. And you you you, 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 you when you finished, we finish certain reels, and we say, "Has that now been checked? Because there's new crowd gone in there, or new lines, or
2: whatever." So,
0: James, I'd love to. Uh draw you in with some questions about editing and i I know that you had a a staggering amount of footage as as ron just mentioned to work through and figure out how to how to structure the film but I, i am really intrigued by the structure of the film and and how you guys landed on that you know one of the things that really struck me is is you know john and rick are really the heroes of the film but we don't even meet them until almost 20 minutes into the movie so i feel like you guys were were breaking some some rules uh, around structuring films, and can you talk about the challenge of that, and then how you ended up with the structure that you've got?
1: Oh, you mean oh, you mean Hollywood rules? <laughs> guilty, we might have we might have come we might have come from there, but we were never thinking of it. We were thinking of it as an international movie, and really, you know, uh, as a movie a, 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 a movie for everyone. But go ahead, James. No, I was just
2: going to say we wanted to throw rules out. You know, that we I think we were somewhat bo- bound by the timeline of the actual events. And so with the amount of footage, we had lots of options on how we wanted to tell the story. There were times where we had narrative scenes and we could actually make the choice of, we can show that in a different way. And we can introduce, as you said, we don't meet Vigo and Colin until, I don't know, nearly 20 minutes into the film because what we did initially by having the first 16 and a half minutes of it in Thai is it authenticated us as a different type of film. It almost felt like a foreign language film and told from the Thai point of view. And I think it was easy to follow and easy to meet those characters right off the bat. But in terms of like how we settled on structure, a lot of conversations about what we wanted in, what we didn't need, what the audience was able to get through our various screenings that could eliminate some of the redundancy and um, typically the pathway in and out of uh, the caves underwater, that whole system going through the various ch- chambers. It was Ron's idea to have them swimming in or diving in right to left. They would always go right to left, essentially for the most part, unless the camera was kind of center punched and they were approaching us or we dropped back over their shoulder and they were going away from us. But that gave the audience, I think, a good sense of the geography. And then when they exited, it was always left to right. So you were never really kind of confused as to where the divers were at any point in the tunnel. And then there were various sort of pieces of dialogue and signposts and familiarity with where these divers would make it to. But in terms of overall rules, I just really wanted to do the unexpected. And I think through all of these revelations, it's what keeps people engaged across the length of the movie because you said earlier that it's a well-known story, it is. But what people don't know, um, you know people have seen the movie by now is the details on how they got the kids out because that information was closely guarded and the parents were sent away and the media was sent away and so that information was never truly revealed to the world most people in my research my approach seem to remember the kids came out alive the kids in the coach someone died they roughly remember elan Musk somehow was on the perimeter of the story um, and that everybody kind of remembers was it. Elon Musk. <laughs> you know yeah, that, that kind of was it. But if you when you look at the movie, we're telling such a chronicle subjective point of view to the story that feels completely experiential and, and different and you, what you thought you knew, even with the outcome, it's really the journey that helps us get there and helps audiences feel the claustrophobia and the danger and the anxiety. And um, all the things that come along with a story like this,
1: the rescue—I I, I thought it was very interesting, important. And, and it, this, this was there in Bill Nicholson's script to begin with, but a lot of it came through, uh, you know, research and understanding the mechanics of it. Because a lot of what was, a lot of what worked, was very basic and very mechanical and kind of low tech. All, all the way to you know when the the people, the water engineer on the mountain has run out of uh, of pipe. And they're, they're trying to build these little, with sandbags and shovels, basically, these little dams and divert the water away so they won't drip down into the sinkhole and make the flooding worse to try to buy the divers time. You know, it's a kind of a simple idea once you understand it, except they ran out of pipe and literally local villagers like these elders said, oh, you, you know, we'll split bamboo in half and you can create these troughs and we can build a lot of those because there's a lot of bamboo and let's get to work and they actually did it. And you know, and so I loved celebrating that kind, of, um, that kind of problem solving. And I kept saying, this is a sort of an intersection between various degrees of technology uh, and, and then individuals experience uh, and then also ability to, to, to improvise. And then there was the sort of the mental state of mind, like, can you actually hold it together to, can you deal with this pressure um, well enough to to actually e- execute this plan, which was dependent upon, you know a bit of luck and, um, and a lot of courage, and without any guarantee of uh, of, a, of a positive outcome, which just blew me away when I began to realize that they were doing all of this. Really, in hopes that they could save one person, you know, uh, it was, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, such an amazing uh, story to get to to share. Well, I just wanted
2: to add one more thing to that. I think what you're seeing and what you're experiencing, the overall outcome of the film, is the connection that we all share together in our understanding of the story and our respect for the Thai culture and our respect for, you know, the, the real events and how we could creatively and as much as the um in unexpected way began to immerse the audience in it. And we were all very connected from our very first Zoom call
1: on. Yeah. On into so, post production. On yeah. into post production, I mean, there was bro- this sentence would happen. You know, you'd say, they did that? Oh geez, <laughs> we got we gotta get that in there. <laughs> and it was right. that, that that little dis- those flashes of discovery. And and it and it by the way it did it it did it played all the way into the sound design and other things that I know you you uh, you want to talk about but the but the interesting thing too was to really spread out the perspective and i really that was an interesting challenge i've done a, a lot of that over the years but not in, in recent years to 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 be a kind of an ensemble movie that keeps shifting so that you keep understanding this crisis from from slightly different perspectives and you and to the point where by the end of the movie you actually understand this on a group level and what it means to a lot of people, not just a, a handful. And so, I I, um, I hope audiences respond to it that way. That was certainly a, a, a you know part of the creative excitement for me.
0: One of the things that immediately struck me, you talk about the two environments, you know, the, the the rescue and the underwater thing, and then and obviously what's happening outside. But the thing that struck me was there's a third environment as well, which is the boys and where they are in the cave and Ron and James you deliberately withhold that from us for a very long time in the movie you know I was I was sort of like okay well if i'm going to see titanic i expect to see the sequence where the ship hits the iceberg so i kept expecting you know i'm going to see the sequence where the kids they get flooded and they have to swim and they fi- but you didn't show us any of that there're this presence that we don't see until the divers find them and then I would love to hear you guys talk about the sound design because you did a very interesting thing, which is where they are in the cave. It's a place of great stillness and, and almost serenity in a way in contrast to everything that's going on around. And so I would love, you know, Ron, for you to talk about, was that part of your original conception for how that was going to be structured? And then uh, from the sound team, how you executed that.
1: Well, first, I would just say, you know, Bill Nicholson uh, initially f- framed that. Uh, in fact, he had even less of the boys going in. I, I, I decided to, to shoot more of that and actually understand what the cave looked like and why it was a kind of an exciting, you know, playground for them in a way and why you could so you could understand why they would want to go deeper. Uh, and, and also so you could differentiate the cave from when it's dry and when it was flooded, it's very different, uh, you know, in environments. But then again, this was about getting into characters' perspectives because Bill wrote it this way because, and I, and I agreed with it. We didn't, while we all sort of know, you know, that, that they got out in the end of the day, you know, that that's the that's that the conceit we're working with is that we're, we're, we're going to take you on the journey of those who didn't know. What the outcome was, and you are going to align yourself with those people, and so for that reason, it was important to not have give the audience that insight into where the boys were and whether they were okay, and and uh, uh, and um, it was a choice. It was a little controversial creatively, but Bill and I always landed on that, you know, on that uh, on that outcome. The environment, look, when it came to the environment, and especially sonically, but visually a little bit with Siampu, the cinematographer but but really with this with this soundscape and the sound design i really did just sort of speak in these cryptic terms and hope they could figure it out like it it needs to be a character okay ron uh it uh you know it uh, the 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 environments need to be different somehow underwater and above water so you guys should just talk about the you know how you actually tackled the problem because you i was so excited when i began to 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 get material back. And I, I just breathed a sigh of relief and felt like, well, they, they, uh, Oliver and Rachel get, they get it. (laughs) Thank God.
5: Um, yeah, in terms of that one, I guess there was an element of it being the eye of the storm, but there's all this turbulence and silt particles everywhere else. And they come up and there was something about for them to have that mental strength and emotional strength that I think their coach, um, Use meditation a lot with the boys to, to keep them sort of grounded. It, it must have been an incredibly harrowing thing um, to be trapped in there and basically in dark for that many days. So there was something that felt right about having that area feeling relatively calm compared to the everything else as well, that it sort of fed into that idea that they've they've forced, despite everything that's happening, they've kind of forced, you know, this environment that they all felt strong in um, and it was relatively calm as well. So I think that was um, a nice... Dynamic between getting to that place was incredibly difficult, and there's water hitting them, caves closing in on them, tank clangs, scrapes, everything else. But once you get to there, then it was about the divers and the and the boys, what the boys had been going through, and and the and obviously the dialogue between, you know, the the boys and the divers to start hearing that sort of relationship building.
3: And also, it's a dichotomy, really. The the more you have this stillness inside the cave outside the cave the frenetic the chaos of all these people showing up it really plays as a two-hander one influences the other and they become a, a starker contrast when you place them together and the crowds actually reinforce I was thinking about this earlier and I, I feel like the journalists especially when they're pounding on 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 top of the divers when they come out the caves that it emphasizes the pressure on them the mental pressure that was on them you've got the physical pressure inside the caves with what they're dealing with but the uh we okay, I worked with Chris Burden quite a lot here trying to thread in all the lines of dialogue so that it would you would hear what each journalist was saying but it wouldn't be overwhelming and so that you can't tell what each is saying, but we mount it as, as he's, they're walking down, you see it gets more and more and more till it's overwhelming for them. So we made this ramp up uh, both when they first come out, when they know the boys are alive, but they secretly feel like there might not be anything they can do about it. And when the last boy is out and the news spreads, there's, it's, it's something Ron was very keen on showing as well, that, that this is a big camp and the news spreads and grows and grows. To, a, to an extreme point at the end. Chris, you can talk a bit about that weave.
4: Yeah, I mean, going back to the, you know, the, the finding the boys, because personally I remember when I first ever watched it, it was just the most emotional one or two or three bits where I absolutely was welling up. It's, it's phenomenally powerful. And it's only now I kind of realise, sometimes with more discussions, the quiet that we established in there allowed us to have... Layers of beautiful, subtle emotion from the boys. It was just whispers. If you had anything like that, you you couldn't even give any countenance to that happening outside with the rains and all that. Same, all any emotion like that. We just had this beautiful magnifying glass available to us that allowed us, it, and it would happen scene after scene in that environment. The most, the scariest place they were in. This is the, potentially the place they're going to die. Was a place of serenity where their their coach was doing this amazing work, uh, meditation and so on. So right from the first time we're in there, you uh, you know that first scene when you see them and you realize they're alive. You just hear the whispers. You hear the detail of these little kids, and you you and and then some of them and you hear the, the, the language, the subtlety that one of them can communicate in English comes up. You you hear the space, and then and it, it extends and it goes further. I can just Grab other scenes in there where there's the humor of harry telling the story again and again about the football and about you know did you believe belgium won again can you believe it and then we were out to you can have those layers of subtlety where there's still whispers of things going on is it me going to be the next one so that was just wonderful to have this kind of almost like theatrical stage with with beautiful subtle water just surrounding us it's still this ridiculously dangerous. Te- terrifying place, but kind of beautiful work because the emotions were so strong in there, and so for us, kind of emotionally, artistically, and technically, we could we could just do things in there that, that, that the other s- settings. Um, were not designed to allow it, which was fabulous
6: well, when we when we first started putting that scene together there was actually quite a lot of running water in that scene like early editions of that mix was there were, we were trying to connect you know what was going on outside the caves with the monsoon season coming into you know and connecting the fact that this this cave system is filling up quick um and so you know early versions of the mix where they you know Rick and John come out and then meeting them for the first time. There is a lot of water going on. Um, and so it sort of we soon realized that actually we wanted to create a different kind of space and it didn't need to have, you know, that that kind of um, that kind of, uh, you know, tension building up at that point. It wasn't a, that scene isn't about that. And it was more about, you know, like creating that space of serenity, and you know, kind of uh, like another character in the film, like Ron was saying, this is a new space. Is a, you know, what and and a kind of intrigue to it, and um, a suspense to it as they're coming up, and what, you know, are, are they in there? Or are they not? And you kind of start to hit you, rather than you know, being distracted by the fact that the cave system is filling up and hearing all this water gushing down. There are just Small, subtle bits of that still going on, but it's more about hearing those kind of like the you know the, little, the voices appearing and the kind of the subtle little footsteps and everything. And, and as we cut back into that scene throughout the later parts of the film, we start to establish the kind of the water in there filling up as we're kind of building to the the climax of the movie. Is you know it's time to get the boys out and this cave system is filling up, but it wasn't necessary in that early you know in that earlier scene.
1: Yeah. Well, there were a lot of uh, d- sort of discoveries along the way. And again, it, ca- it has, it had to do with focus. And of course, I directed it with a sense of what we wanted to focus on. I wanted to make this a ride, you know, so in, on the, on the one, it, you know, that's again the value of making it, telling it on, a, as a narrative story. You make it entertaining and engrossing and people kind of lose themselves in, in what the cinema can do to make it a, you know, an entertaining and, and, and fascinating. And, the ideas behind it, the themes behind it, and sometimes even land with 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 more power because they're kind of coming in almost through a subconscious uh, section of of the brain. But things like the water, um, that was a discovery that it, you know. Again, it, 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 as was said, he, he the initial idea was let's right away introduce how you know intense that is. But we pulled back on it, and then I remember one day James came in after a screening. And we, we needed to find a way to make that final day uh, re- to recognize how treacherous it still was. The divers were exhausted, the rain was on its way now, the monsoons had hit and they weren't going to let up and they didn't let up in reality. Uh, you know, within another two days, it was completely flooded and, uh, and they never would have gotten anybody out. But, uh, and James came in one day and said, "It the water, the water is the new villain now. And now we got to let it out. And it was, and we found ways visually to enhance, you know, that, but to give sound this, this opportunity to, you know, to to sort of take advantage of the fact that we'd held back and, and really, really, you know, um, flood our, our senses with that as a, as a, as a, you know, as like as a, as a danger. Yeah, we had a lot of opportunity for sonic
2: contrast when the divers are first finding the boys on that 10th day, and then they when they leave, this moment always sticks with me, how we sit in black and how they say, thank you. And, and then they leave. And it's just the loneliest feeling that you get from their point of view, what it must've been like, just a glimpse of what they had been suffering through for 10 days with no other human contact. But it also speaks a little to the culture and those boys in there that when we find them, We didn't come upon them with them arguing or fighting or wondering, you know, when they were gonna get out or anything like that, there was a serenity to it. And I think that spoke volumes about the culture, those kids, the coach's ability to keep those kids calm and believing that somehow, some way, without him knowing that they were going to get through there. And then by contrast, by the time we got to, you know, there's seven dives in the film. So we've talked all along about differentiating those dives and through different points of view and being subjective throughout the whole t- experience. But by the time we got to that last day, day 18, you know, there's rain and then there's monsoon rains. And people have to understand that this was not a foolhardy thing that the boys did by going into the caves. And that in Thailand, when the monsoons happen, this is rain like most of us don't know so it's it 's disastrous if they would have not been able to get the boys out, as Ron said they would have a couple of days later they probably wouldn 't have survived it, so the ability to just kind of pivot back and forth as the story required, and yes, we did learn these things along the way once we got better scopes shaped to the film what really we needed and where we needed yeah
0: i 'm really glad that you brought up that uh, that that sequence, uh, and you talk about the loneliness. After the divers establish contact, when they leave and the boys are still there, and I'm just I'm haunted by that image of them one by one turning out their flashlights, and we go back into into darkness, and it's just it, it was it was su- it was such an emotional moment. And but Ron, to your point, so simple, just really simple storytelling, but it's it's so powerful.
3: And I also want to point out how powerful the story is in that when Ron just said two days later, the cave was fully flooded. I actually got goosebumps and I've seen the film many times. So it just goes to show.
1: There, you know, it was great having uh, uh, Rick Stanton and Jason Mallison around because they were not only there to help make sure that the diving was accurate and that the diver's technique was right and that we understood what the threats and the complications were and the procedure of it all. But um, even though you know, they're not guys that dwell on emotions very much as individuals. <laughs> but none, nonetheless, we, on the day that we were actually shooting the scene that you're talking about with the flashlights, you know, I just remember Rick talking about, you know, how how sure how, he wasn't sure he'd ever see those boys again, you know, and he, he knew he was leaving them in the dark. And, and uh, you, you know, and they gave him a, another flashlight or two, but he just thought it was a, hopeless scenario. And he was pretty shattered by that, turned away. And I just thought, leave them in the dark. And, you know, of course, there's going to be a moment of leaving them in the dark, but there's, there's that. And then there's sort of making a moment that will allow that sort of focus. And, and so it, it just fed that notion of the flashlights kind of coming out, you know, just slowly uh, disappearing until, until we were in the complete darkness
0: one of the first things that you notice when you watch this movie is there's a lot of rain. Uh, This movie obviously takes place in Thailand during the monsoon season. And rain is a pretty ubiquitous presence that starts at the beginning of the movie and goes more or less in and out through the entire film. And I think for those in the sound community, you know, rain is particularly tricky. It can be kind of monotonous sounding. And so I would love Rachel and Oliver, maybe you can start us off by just talking about, uh, you know, how you approached having this much rain uh, in the film, uh, you know, and, and and how did you keep it interesting? And and I guess, obviously, also, it's notorious uh, when there are that many rain gigs on a set that the production tracks are pretty challenged. So maybe you can talk to us about
5: handling all of that. Sure, just in terms of the, you know, adding Sound of Rain in, just to keep it as varied as possible, obviously. Um, but it was uh, to try and establish, we really wanted to, it to feel like a sudden downpour that this wasn't a reckless excursion from the boys so it did happen you know the the monsoon season came in early um and so they were caught out rather than doing something foolish so um it came we really wanted to sell that idea of incredibly hard rain um also then to the early part of the logistic um all the everyone turning up to try and help to compromise that um with with the mud tires sliding everywhere um but as much as anything we wanted to the it's hitting everything and permeating everything um so just varying all the surfaces but everything is feeding into water traveling through the rock and filling up the cave and basically the the water is the antagonist in the film um and we're basically just wanting to hear this extreme water feeding into this thing down there that um, they're having to battle against to get to the boys so um and that all the like heavy currents and turbulence that you feel in there whether it's dripping down the caves everything is being fed from from above so it was really important early on just to show that whether it's where the camp is up on the mountain side everything is just being hit incredibly hard um yeah
3: and from the dialogue side rain absolutely was something i didn't want uh it was a huge challenge really but uh it's we talked with the production recorders paul Paul Brinkett, uh, from the beginning because he knew he would be be facing this on a daily basis. And even uh, in the war room where they're having discussions, right, who's going to go in, how do we get the boys out, there's rain going on on top of that everywhere. So pretty much almost every scene has it. And it was a huge cleanup job because the pressure was on to maintain the original production more so even than usual because the divers i'm talking about vigo and colin they said that with these beautiful sets and all the diving training they had it felt like they didn't have to force their performance they could it, it just live naturally in them so you really don't want to have to get them in six months later in their in their joggers in in la if it, it if you can at all help it. So we clean up as best we could, but eventually we had to admit defeat on certain lines, certain key lines. And yeah, there was uh, uh, a lot of ADR and Chris Burden here was very good at blending in the hundreds and hundreds of lines that there ended up being. Uh, and Vigo even flew in, especially for two full days of ADR to London with us uh, just to be in the room with us, cause he's such a pro. And yeah, it was a big challenge. I'm sure Chris can talk a bit more about blending that in. I mean,
4: yeah, I'm sort of grateful that Rachel is such a superstar in terms of delivering uh, uh, such a sort of good, well, it's, it's a ridiculously high level of of cleanup that it retains all of the quality of the originals as much as we could. And then and, and she also had some ambiences set up and so on on the originals. And it was uh, bit by bit the ADR would come in and we'd realise where we would replace it. So it was a, it was a little bit of an evolution. Um, but, again, this it was actually – I was just looking at some of the making of just to remind myself a bit about this. We we got lucky in, in the interiors, actually, the the, the originals, didn't have a a, a a sort of false ambience to them because the sets were so brilliant and the water in there and everything. So actually when we were bedding the ADR in with the originals, there, there was a lot of sort of protection and, and lots of devices we could use to just merge all the performances where we needed to and get... And it was, we'd work constantly on clarity and just, again, chip away at it throughout the whole process.
3: The reverbs on the dialogues, they, uh, Hugo Adams, who's our... Foley supervisor went down to Wookiee Hole, which is a cave system in England, and did some great IRs of the different cave spaces from the back of the cave, from the front, all different sides. And we use that in conjunction with a few other reverbs to give each space when they emerge through the caves a unique shape, if it's a long tunnel or it's a tiny space, because there's a lack of lighting there has to be in these shots. So the voices tell you what the shape of the space is straight away as they come up and that really helped and that was something ron actually specifically wanted which i find amazing he's got the time and the mental capacity to come up with these notes from the beginning and uh he was quite right as he always is
0: that must have felt very gratifying to you to know that all that hard work was appreciated uh back in thailand so uh, you know obviously look we're here to talk about the sound let's get underwater um, and normally I I, I kind of wait to introduce Dolby to Atmos as a topic for us to talk about but Atmos it turns out is pretty important uh, in this film especially in the in the underwater sequences and so uh, you know the, the thing that I noticed right away is is this is not sort of a, a national Geographic uh, beautiful coral reef diving underwater experience uh, the, the underwater sequences in this film are very harrowing and very uh, uh, really terrifying so talk to me about you know and there's a lot of this movie that takes place underwater so how did you go about building that library um getting those elements and handling the uh the mixing
5: of the underwater sequences i had a zoom call with ron really early on um with james was on that as well um and i think there was an awareness that there was gonna be a lot of diving in the film obviously um and we needed to keep it interesting and there had to be a narrative quality to it as you said it had to feel dangerous and threatening um so the first thing I did after the Zoom call was just look at what the natural properties of sound, you know, how how it behaves underwater, and the the two big kind of things that informed us in terms of our approach to the sound design were that a lot of the the way we register sound is bone conductivity behind the ear rather than just hearing um, in a normal way, and that means reduced frequency. So we had a very mid-centric kind of sound. Um, But the other one is um, due to the increased speed of sound underwater, we, we aren't calibrated to to discern very easily where the sound is coming from it's like you know if you if you cover one eye you can't your depth perception goes and it's a little bit the same if, if a sound wave hits both ears exactly the same time because it's going so fast you can't say you know what's the delta here how we we know it's here or we know it's there so that that really helped um, early on we were trying a few a few scenes out um, the way we we're designing it um, and by not Knowing exactly where everything is by having a much more diverged um, soundscape in there, it it takes away the sense that you're used to of just going. If I hear something, I know where it is. And it's a classic horror film thing to do, is just have abstract sounds. Um, and we don't. If we have a sound in there, there's a reason it's happening. Whether it's someone pulling on a rope or there's silt coming or something, or the tank clangs, but it's it's not necessarily tied to a place that the audience goes. Oh, that's happening on the right hand side of the screen, or that they have to look for it. It feels a little bit more interactive. And having that made uh, made it feel more subjective as an audience, and, we, and that was important for us to try and do, that we really wanted to sell the idea of what it would be like in that environment for um, for the audience. So um, I think those two things really, that very mid-centric thing that everything sat in that one band without that definition we're used to, and it could be coming from anywhere, um, definitely, yeah, was, was a useful thing. And Will, Mike Fenton designed the... Uh, sound with me, and then Will came along uh, as the effects mixer, um, and we and we basically all got on board with that. So maybe Will, if you want to talk about the, the mix side of that as
6: well. Yeah, I think the you know the the concept for this kind of diverged you know environment came up quite early on. I think it was the first temp. We would sort of just start started discussing it with James and Ron, and coming up with this idea to help you know distinguish this as a completely different environment to the ab- above ground. We want to create this kind of whole new world that no one had has ever experienced other than these guys. And obviously that's quite a challenge for us because we've never been in that in- situation and a lot of people haven't been in that situation. So trying to create, you know, a cinematic immersive experience uh, as well as be true to, you know, that exact environment was quite a tricky thing to come up with. So obviously, we could go with the idea that you know sound does travel four or five times faster underwater. So let's start playing around with some of the sounds that the guys have come up with, and start sort of placing them in the room in this diverged way. So taking a lot of the kind of a- ambient sounds, the background noises, the particles, all the silt, all that stuff that's kind of like in the water and Placing that within the room, in the space in kind of different amounts and not not applying the same amount of divergence to each thing. So everything's kind of got its own randomness in in, in place in the room. Um, and then when it came down to, you know, the actual spot effects, whether it's the rope that's being pulled on or whether it's the tank clangs and it's, you know, those things all had varying amounts of um, like panning, whether it's coming from the heights, from surrounds and fronts, all applied in different ways uh, to create this sense of yeah, wherever you're sat in the room, you're not quite sure where that sound's coming from, and you are looking for it, um, and it's this kind of otherworldly space, and um, things like you know the the breaths and and, all that, and those kind of things and the bubbles. We kind of kept we kind of kept a lot of the time uh, quite focused on the sensor, so it kind of t- did still connect you to the the characters because that was an important thing that we were trying to you know despite creating this you know you know this environment that you've never experienced we also wanted to keep you connected to the story and what's going on so it was this real fine balance is telling telling this story and they're kind of going through the cave it's a hard thing to describe because it's such a you know claustrophobic environment um they you know visually couldn't really see too too much but you know sonically we were trying to help the audience kind of Go through what these guys are going through, and you have these POV shots. You know, when we cut to those, we can kind of like go inside the mask, and we have we have the breasts kind of coming all from around us, so it feels like you're actually there, experiencing what they're doing, going through those stalactites. Um, so it was a it was a real you know a real kind of um, challenge to get that right. Unfortunately, you know, Rick and John have, have had heard heard the film and and had you know Oliver had gone and recorded a bunch of stuff with them, and they were you know really uh, kind of um, you know, happy with the way that it turned out and, you know, did say that they was, you know, as, as close as what we could, you know, what they experienced in real life, which was, which was quite a compliment other than more tank clangs,
5: which we thought we'd gone pretty OTT on the tank clangs as it was. But um, apparently, if you're in those uh, scenarios, um, there are, you cannot have too many tank clangs. <laughs> so I think, and it just sells that cumbersome, even though you're in water and you're being suspended to some degree, it's just, you know, you've got these tanks flailing around and, and incredibly tight spaces. So that ever-present feeling that this it feels like this world is caving in on you whilst the water's gushing at you and it, and the particles everywhere so it, w- it did feel like a hostile environment um and in that that recording session we did with john Valentin, it was quite because uh, we looked up the theoretical side of how the the water the sound in water bay but we actually when we set up two pairs of hydrophones one at one end and one at the other end of the the big cave pool um it really didn't matter where john was doing what he was doing I and mean, when we got them back into pro tools they both almost sounded identical which is so it does it is really of the way that um and we've all heard that if you're in a swimming pool and someone jumps in and you're underwater you hear the noise but you don't know exactly where it's from but it was um you kind of don't think about it until you have to and this film definitely made us do that yeah
0: i love what you're talking about in terms of of using the sound because obviously it was very dark uh and it's murky and so you were able to build a more uh broad and detailed sonic environment to orient the audience and let them know what's going on and i i love what you're talking about about You know, then you had the perspective inside the mask and you can give people the subjective experience of it. Uh, But also you're using sound and the sound design in a really emotional uh, way as well. Not only for the tension, but I I just was really struck uh, by the scene. And obviously we'll post this after, you know, the movie's already streaming, so we won't worry about about spoilers. But there's that just extraordinary sequence um, you know, when the Navy Seals are diving and and someone, you know, who is kind of a, a heroic character for us gets caught and drowns and that sequence is so beautiful from a sonic perspective. And can you just break that down for us and how you approach that sequence and and what you felt you needed to accomplish from a sound perspective?
5: Sure. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a real event. So I think, um, key was to be respectful with it. Um, and, and so I think we wanted it's a, a tragic event that occurred and and so we made the the event that leads to um the air being spent you know that, that was quite a frenetic event um and and then basically with all that noise that's happening there we just started stripping layers away um and um we the music is in there for that spell we hear the music start to dissipate away we start to hear him um the the air supply depleting and that sort of extra strain on the, um, on the regulator. And then eventually you kind of just, you're just hearing him drift into basically silence with that. And that one last um, tank clang as it sort of scrapes down and, and then just, and then a little beat just to register what had happened, but it's after you're so aware of all these scuba breaths all the way through the film that, to actually go to silence like that, you're suddenly aware of your own breathing, which was quite a powerful thing, I think.
0: Well, I know we're coming to the end of our time. Um, Ron, I do just want to wrap up with a question for you. Uh, You know, you are well known in the in the sound community for using sound as a great storytelling tool. And this particular film, as I as I said, was just such a spectacular experience in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. So I, I would love to hear from you just how those two tools Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos were important to you in telling this particular story.
1: <laughs> now, now the truth is going to be re- revealed in that I don't know very much about sound. But I know a lot about the experience of being in an audience and I know a lot about the, you know, the sort of the nuances of storytelling and I know that it's it's a little mysterious. It's almost like mad music to me, where I'm not a musician, I understand how that wh- kind of that it works. I can help, but mostly I just have to have creative conversations, and that's what I've learned to do over over the years. Frankly, in the areas where you know, like um, visual effects, uh, m- music, and sound design, where I really have to just talk as to to the to the artist as though they're they're actors, really, uh, you know, or or, or writers, uh, their colleagues in this storytelling process, and I find that. I find that exciting and stimulating. And, and of course, often the picture editors, you know, they contribute mightily, um, and, and, uh, and, and early on. And, but I, I love to get the sound design team in as early as possible and begin seeing cuts. You know, even if it's not their sound effects, if it's temp, everything's temp because it just initiates a conversation that can run a little bit deeper. So it's not about just scrambling around at the end. Um, that's, generally not where the 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 the, the really um, impactful conceptual ideas come from um so it's uh, you know i i i love the collaboration and i've continued to uh, enjoy it and be kind of tickled because when these things work it's great in a way that i don't exactly know how they did it <laughs> because you know it's like wow okay surprise touchdown next scene
4: as a music dialogue mixer I've actually retained that sort of um, kind of magical, the response to the magic that comes typically from my right hand side from Ollie and Will and his team and the sound designers. And I kind of blissful ignorance often how the design has happened and it's come together. And it's like a musical kind of overture occurs with all these multiple layers. And I love that, you know, I really do. And I sincerely kind of, uh, I, I sort of enjoy a little a bit of ignorance of where it's come from. And, and I should be technical about what I do, but I quite enjoy that. And it's, it's same, similar thing wrong. So I, I, I enjoy that.
1: Yeah, it was actually, a, it was a big moment in, in, in um, uh, we were still shooting, I believe. And, and when the uh, first sort of notion of a, of a rough sequence uh, came to us from a design standpoint, and we kind of gathered around, you know, to listen. And it was almost was like Christmas morning or something, because we were all just smiling at what it meant. Uh, um, you know, and then Ben Wallfish heard it and he said, in this sequence, I think you're going to want to feature that. And I I know we talked about this being, you know, heavily music, but I, I, I don't, I don't think we should. Uh, and very early on was, you know, we realized, well, great. The, the, whatever they're doing, whatever they're understanding and sharing is really working because it's transporting us and we're all feeling it. And that's, and that's what this, that's what the film need
6: needed dolby like you know in terms of utilization of dolby atmos as, in a, as a format on this mix is you know probably the most extreme we've gone to with the use of it Um, you know, it it lends itself perfectly for it because we're trying to produce something incredibly immersive. uh, And so therefore, you know, a format where you've got, you know, the bass managed surrounds, more speakers, everything is there to allow you to achieve this. So, you know, we kind of pushed it to the extreme, those moments where you're underwater, you know, it's all channels going all the time with all this kind of all this diverged audio that's going on. Um, Obviously, a big part of Doing that, you know, knowing where it's going to go. This is an Amazon show, and it's going to end up on a streaming service, like a lot of things do now. And so, a big part of while we were doing this was considering the home experience as well, and how we can get what you know what we're experiencing in a big room, you know, recreate that best at home. It wasn't just a case of like, okay, there's the theatrical mix that send it out. We spent a lot of time um, in a in a home theater doing the home Atmos mix. And you know, taking bounces of that, and having a listen to it on soundbars, and and doing multiple things to kind of make sure that it's you know you know where we might have lost some low frequencies and, and some of the kind of like diverged stuff, like making sure we can kind of try and recreate that. So we were taking like low low you know subharmonic generators and feeding the effect stem through, pitching it down, trying to kind of recreate that experience that we were all having in a big room.
0: Thank you once again to Ron, James, Chris, William, Rachel, and Oliver for joining us today. An extra special thanks to our friends at Prime Video for helping us put this conversation together. As I mentioned up top, 13 Lives is available to watch right now on Prime Video. As always, we'll have a link for you in our show notes. And if you haven't already, please make sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. Awards season is upon us once again, and you can expect more big conversations here in the coming weeks. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby, wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This has been the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sunny Chen.